Hello and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast. We're David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. Today we have John Waller. Hi, John. Hello. Thanks for being here. John is a partner at Okapi Ventures. Uh, real treat to have you here. I know you've got the founder experience, the investor experience, M&A, corp dev type experience, Idea Lab, and special bonus points for me that we're here in Pasadena. We're in Cross Campus where I, um, I've i been plugging my Friday coffee meetup that I love so much um, just downstairs upon us. So thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you, the invitation, and I think what you guys are doing is phenomenal. I uh, it's, it's really been a blast to listen to uh, the previous episode, so I'm, I'm glad to be here. Cool. Well, we've got all these experiences, so just get us up to speed on, on where you started, where you are now. Sure, sure. I'll make it relatively quick. I grew up here in right here in Pasadena, actually. Went to school in Los Angeles and graduated, moved to New York City, where I decided to, after a brief stint on Wall Street, decided to start a company. This is in the early 90s, so right as the internet was becoming commercialized, and we created one of the first entertainment properties that actually started on the web called Riddler. It was an online game show. And that company morphed into what became um, 24-7, which is one of the first online ad networks. And so I guess we did the proverbial pivot from online entertainment property to uh, to online ad network. And that company ended up doing well. We merged with two other companies to create 24-7 Media, which went public in 98. I used the money I made from that to jump back into the startup world. I, I realized that I enjoy um, the early portions of, uh, of startup activity, and so I jumped in feet first. Wait, can I ask a question there? Both of you guys have taken companies public. What do I not, like, it seems very sexy to me to take a company public. Taking a company from zero to one is very different than taking a company from one to a hundred or, or whatever you want to do. It's a, just a very different skill set and a very different day-to-day sense of activities. And it's just something that for me, it wasn't where I was uh, most happy and it wasn't where I was probably best suited. Yeah. I think taking a company public in the late nineties was also kind of different than it is today. There was a bunch for of legislation sure. since then, but also just a different idea of what companies should be public and shouldn't. Um, I actually kind of enjoyed the process. Weirdly. Did you? Yeah, I liked the whole drafting process and that that whole. Yeah, it, it felt. Um, sometimes I say it felt Talmudic because <laughs> you're <laughs> right, sitting around right, arguing right. over every word. Right. Um, well, but, for, uh, it was certainly a, a good experience to have once. Yes, for sure. Well, for me, it, it felt. Um, I think I was also in all candor, you know, skiing a, a little bit over my tips at the time. I was 24, 25. Wow. Um, maybe maybe by the time I went public, I was 27. But um, and it was really tough to feel like I really had command of what was going on. And um, it wasn't, like I said, something that I was enjoying terribly much anyway. And so when uh, it went public, I decided to to step on out and jumped into the startup game again as an angel investor or and or serial entrepreneur. I started some companies. I consulted for some companies. I um, invested in some companies and some of those did great. Some of those not so much, um, which is the way of the world in early stage uh, companies. And the last company I did was called Resume.com. Started that in March of 2000, which was not a great time to be starting anything uh, internet related. But uh, it was a very interesting journey and continued to fund that and run it until I sold it to Adeco, which was uh, the largest company, uh, largest staffing company in the world. It, it still might be, I'm not really sure. Stayed there for a year for my earnout and integration. Decided uh, it was time to move back to LA. 
So I moved back to LA in 2004, where I did some angel investing and ended up joining Idea Lab, Bill and Marcia, just down the street here, and was running their new venture group for a couple of years, and then running one of their uh, software companies called X One for a couple of years. You know, we're here in Pasadena. I'm also from Pasadena, and Idea Lab has this, and Bill and Marcia, Bill Gross in particular, has this larger than life persona. Like, I don't even really know what the new venture group right. was or is. Sure. Uh, yeah, Bill Bill is wonderful and Marsha is wonderful and I'm, I'm huge fans of theirs. I've been doing this for a, a long enough time that I've run into a fair amount of really impressive people. And that's not to say I'm impressive. <laughs> it just means that I've sort of had a chance to interact and work with uh, a lot of great people. And Bill Gross is still one of these guys that can floor me. Um, he's phenomenal. So in his ideas or in his ideas, in his infectiousness and how he can pitch, he is one of the best pitchmen I've ever seen in the way that his mind works in sort of a very hyper logical, methodical manner. And he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. And, and he really, he just has entrepreneurship in his veins. It's, you know, he, he did done it since he was a kid and he's never done anything else, but be an entrepreneur in everything he does. And so it's it's just fascinating. But to answer your question, the New Venture Group is actually taken on probably a, a few different set of responsibilities over the years because Idea Lab's gone through some changes um, over the years, as, as every company does. Uh, but when I was there, it was sort of the entity that was responsible for coming up with, starting, and vetting new companies. So Bill would have probably the majority of the ideas that he wanted to start. Like 150 um, a right, hundred. He's got his list of 150. I'm sure it's more by now. In fact, I know it's more by now. I've, I've seen them. Um, and he, and but the, the ideas can come from elsewhere too. I mean, I, I brought a company in there, um, which we funded and it ended up not working out, which we can talk about, but, um, and other people have brought in ideas and you, you test it and it's, you know, it's very, very, um, analytical and you test things very, very cheaply. You buy a URL, you buy some traffic, you see if it's going to work or you build a prototype and see if it can hold the energy for his energy vault opportunities and things like that. Um, and then if it is, we recruit a CEO or he likes to bring the people who are in new venture groups to spin out, to become the CEOs of those companies a lot of times. Um, but it's, to me, it's where kind of the real napkin to, you know, first check of, you know, 250 or $500,000 comes in. When I left, um, I was trying to figure out what was next for me. I had always sort of, I loved angel investing, but you know, angel investing is a, lo a lonely game. It's actually a very tough business to do well um, for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about being a lone wolf angel investors. It's a tough gig. And so when I was looking around for what was next, I was actually recruited by the head of corporate development and strategy at Mattel. And I had never really thought about joining an old school fortune 500 company, but it was an interesting dynamic because, um, they were facing some very real challenges with, you know, switch to digital. I don't know if you guys have kids and where they are in their, their life, but you know, when I was growing up, it was Tinker Toys and Hot Wheels and whatever. Nowadays, you know, the kids spend all their time pressing on glass, right? They're playing video games or iPad and that's not, really Mattel's forte, um, or it wasn't their forte. And so they had a really interesting uh, dilemma on how to sort of deal with this shift. And that was really interesting to me. And so I came on to help them with that or try to help them with that. 
and I was there for about two years and, uh, it was fascinating. I learned a tremendous amount about what in at least what I observed, they, you know, large corporations do very, very well. And some of the things that they could really improve on I- inevitably, I think in a large corporation, you're going to see a fair amount of politics. That's not a bad thing. It just is the way it is in large, you know, larger the company. And so I felt like I was spending a tremendous amount of my time getting internal buy-in and sort of working internally to sort of get things done as opposed to sort of going outside and getting things done and making things happen. And I'm sure a part of that was because I didn't sort of appreciate how to really operate very well in, in that environment. But I think that I think anyone who was there would agree that they could do some improving there too. But I want to, I want to pick on the Mattel. I'm super interested. So yeah. I, I've never been on the corp dev side of things. And I think it's interesting for startups to understand what goes on in a corp dev department. Sure. And like, if you're, cause you were doing corp dev, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, the distinction I've always made is corp dev is like M&A and biz dev is more like partnerships. Right, right. Um, and so like if I'm a startup, can I approach, and I'm in the digital Mattel sure. space or something. Sure, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good question. And, um, you know, keep in mind that I've actually had a fair amount of experience selling companies and to corporate development divisions and larger companies. But my real true watching the sausage get made was, you know, it's, it's an N of one. I was at Mattel in one place. But one thing I think is fascinating is that tech CEOs and founders and groups, we're sort of brought up to see the sort of cult of personality founder CEOs. You think of Bezos or Steve Jobs or things like that. And so you just presume that, you know, if someone wants something to happen, it just happens. But in larger corporatizations that are sort of more old school, it is not the way things happen. It's all by committee and they have their own strategic plan and you need to slot right into what that is in order for you to have a real chance. Now, again, there's exceptions to everything, but that's one of the things that was really interesting. So you could have a phenomenal startup that is doing great, that would be a great bolt-on for Mattel or any other company, but unless it's already part of sort of their strategic plan and their swim lane that they're planning to go on, it's generally pretty hard to disrupt and have something and say, wow, we've never really thought about doing that, but this is a pretty cool business. Let's do this. That I think that rarely happens. Do you find it's useful for companies to reach out to Corp Dev or do they need to go find a champion? I think, I think finding a champion is absolutely necessary. Now, whether it comes before approaching Corp Dev or not, I think it's just, it really is episodic. It depends, but there is a benefit to going to corp dev initially because they already know what all the initiatives are. So they can sort of pick out your, the champion within the organization. So that sometimes helps. So this is like a product manager or someone or a GM or something. GM. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about Okapi. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I was at Mattel a couple of years and Okapi, the founder, co-founder of Okapi, Mark Averett, and I actually went to undergrad together. And I I went off and did the the sort of startup entrepreneurial thing. Mark did the more corporate track initially, at least, and got his JD, worked at Sun Microsystems as a lawyer, and then Intel as a lawyer, switched to the BD side, and um, was running corporate dev and strategy for the software group at Intel. And he was down here in Southern California when he was recruited by a number of local uh, businesses, Western Digital, Microsemi, uh, Edwards Life Sciences, to 
create a fund, basically. You, Mark likes to call it his, his, his field of dreams fund. Build it and they will, come, they will invest um, because they really appreciated the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of startup capital down here, especially in Orange County. Um, and so they recruited Mark to start this fund, Okapi Ventures. And the fund initially did both healthcare, med tech, and sort of generic IT. And uh, so funds one did was a pretty much 50-50 split for med tech and uh, general tech. Fund two, they realized that some of these health uh, investments take a little bit more capital, take a little bit longer to exit. And so they started doing more deals on a numbers basis towards tech for fund two. So fund two was probably around a you know, 60-40 split or maybe even a 70-30 split. And then for fund three, which is when I joined him, so Mark and I had been talking and working together off and on. I invested in some of his deals when I was still just an angel and I was trying to sell him my companies when he was at Intel. And so we, we've always talked about working together, but the stars never really aligned until it was clear that Okapi was gonna be going forward doing only tech and software investments. And so I joined him a couple of years ago as well as another partner, um, Jeff Bocan, who's a phenomenal VC. He's been, uh, he grew, he actually grew up here, but was a VC in the Midwest at Berengia and, uh, was uh, a senior manager at Mophie, which he took the company from like 10 million to over 200 million in revenue. And so he's got really deep operating chops as well. Um, and so it's just the three of us, uh, Mark, Jeff, and myself. And our thesis is, you know, I don't want to say fairly similar to others, but I think, you know, some of the alphabet soup that we're interested in, you know, is similar to to others out there. Cap, very capital efficient businesses, SaaS opportunities, IoT, big data, things like that. Our focus is exclusively Southern California. I'm sure there will be an exception here and there, depend, you know, because we've got deep Rolodexes in other areas, but we really love what's going on here in Southern California. We really like to be very, very involved. We try to lead or co-lead all of our deals. And that just helps when the founder and the company is local. And it's just seed stage. It's just seed stage now. You can sort of divide that up into pre-seed and seed and post-seed and seed plus or whatever everyone's calling it these days. I call it A minus. There you go. A, there you go. That's 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 actually good. I like that. Um, A minus. So, so yeah, we, we come in at the seed stage. Um, and, but we will, we, we do reserve a healthy follow on for, you know, series A and B in, in, in later stages, both to help the companies and you know, protect our, our equity. Um, and given that we do focus almost exclusively on Southern California, we tend to be a little bit more agnostic than some, um, I would say our wheelhouse is, you know, enterprise software, SaaS type opportunities, um, but we aren't afraid of consumer. We have a consumer company. We understand that. We're not afraid of deep tech. We're not afraid of hardware. We don't chase those, but we you know, we don't shy away from them either. Um, I'd say the only things we really don't do are cannabis and blockchain, not because uh, we don't think there's opportunity there, but it's we're just not going to be the smartest people in the room there at all. Will you still do any health tech? We will do um, consumer health tech. So basically the line is anything that doesn't have to go through the FDA, right? Because that, you know, once you go into those types of opportunities, it's a different sort of capital requirement structure and, you know, time to exit and expertise. Uh, so, you know, certainly SaaS, you know, type business for the enterprise, for hospitals and healthcare, things like that. Absolutely. But 
anything that goes to the FDA is probably probably not a fit for us. You said you like to lead. What size checks do you write? How big is the fund? Um, our check sizes range anywhere from 250 on the low end to 750 up to a million for first checks. Um, and that will probably begin to increase as we're continuing to see these size of the seed rounds increasing. And if we want to lead and be a very active participant, take board seats, and you know, you you need to be able to write checks that are that are meaningful enough to to do that. But we uh, we do love to syndicate out, and we you know we certainly aren't looking to um, be the only ones in there. We love people to come in alongside us, and in fact, that's important that we do because uh, there's a lot of really smart people, and we. Want want to have as many smart people around the table as we can. And when you're evaluating one of these deals, I'm going back to the M&A stuff because I'm, I'm sort of, you have a good perspective. How do you think of M&A as a potential exit? Like, will you look at that? Um, do you think that's a good potential exit or you think that's a negative? Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think if you just look at the data, most companies that have an exit of, or that have a successful outcome are going to be M&A deals, right? I mean, fluctuates depending on the the decade or, or every three or four years or so. But generally, I mean, that's what's going to, that's very likely what's going to happen. And so absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things we try to do uh, to add value over and above the capital is to bring that sort of understanding and expertise and appreciate sort of as these companies grow, what are certain things we need to do as we begin to think about what the exit looks like and what these corp dev departments will be thinking about, or even PE firms and things like that, because it, is, as you guys know, every step of the way, there's a lot of nuance and science and art to all of this. And so having been through that, um, gotten a lot of scar tissue along the way to to sort of understand some of, the, some of those dynamics. I've seen various people's deal memos and some predict exits and some don't. Uh, we don't actually, but I'm curious whether, whether you do and what kind of exits you think about when you're investing at the beginning. Yeah. You know, I, I, in all candor, I mean, I I think trying to predict exits or sort of map out the exits, um, is, I don't want to say useless because I think it's good to sort of have a thesis and sort of play things out. But you guys know, once you write the check, it just ends up being generally a very different story. But, um, so, so no, we don't kind of map out exactly what we think the exit is. Although I will say that just from venture return dynamics, you absolutely have to believe that any one of these companies you invest in can be a fund returner, right? When that generally means being able to at least squint a little bit and see how this could become a billion dollar company. And that doesn't mean you're not very happy if it doesn't become that. And there's wonderful exits that are sub billion that end up being fantastic returns. But from an entrepreneur's perspective, if you're taking VC money, you know, you really are on that trajectory that um, you're going to, you're, we're investing in companies that we think can be very, very big for sure. I would have thought there's just very little M&A of billion dollar acquisitions or am I? No, okay. You guys both came no, in. No, that's fair. Maybe. I mean, most billion dollar companies, I say that, I don't know the data, but I would imagine most billion-dollar billion companies that end up with those valuations end up going public. But remember, my point of view is you need to at least think that there could be an opportunity with that, not necessarily that that's the most likely outcome, right? And especially when we're investing at the very early stages, we look to get double-digit you know, percentage ownership. You don't have to exit for a billion dollars, especially if there aren't a whole lot of uh, funding rounds in between for it to be a monster home run. So... I, it's a fair point. I wouldn't take the the billion, you know, unicorn thing, you know, completely at face value. But 
just in and around being a very big company. Have you ever been at odds with a, a founder who either wants to go long and you think they should get off the train or wants to get off the train and you think they should go long? For sure. I mean, we, we try to front load those discussions as much as we can. And I think that's sort of maybe more of the softer side of it because I think that, as you guys know, I mean, investing in an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur taking an investor's money, I mean, that's a very, very serious sort of relationship and you need to make sure that you're very much aligned. And it's really difficult to predict the future because the, uh, you know, entrepreneurs oftentimes are young and they change, their mindset changes and what they thought they wanted at the outset changes a few years down the road. And, you know, our job is to try to have those discussions as, as early as possible, make sure there's alignment. And we've definitely, there's been companies that I've liked a lot. And the founder was very clear. He's like, look, I, I have a very clear path. I'm in this for two years and I see how this is going to exit. And, you know, and that I love the company, but it just wasn't a good fit because I don't think it was aligned with what we were looking for. Um, now, once we do write the check, I think it's fair to say, and um, certainly we try, maybe we don't always succeed, but we really, really try to support the entrepreneur and the founder and whatever they want to do, whatever choices they want to make. I mean, there's certainly been companies that we would have loved to take, taken further. And the entrepreneur was, you know, had a really good offer and he was, or was going to be a wealthy person, you know, for, for the rest of his life and had more money that he knew what to do with. And you can't knock him for that. And so we, we'll definitely support that. Um, you know, once we write the check, we're, we're on his or her side of the proverbial table at that point. Is there a difference between an exit to a corporation or a PE acquisition? Like, do you think I sort of have this, it's more negative if it's a PE acquisition because they eat it up a little bit. Well, more. PE firms aren't known for overpaying, yeah. right? And with a corporation, they can have a larger strategic objective that they can justify the valuation. I mean, you know, look at Facebook or Instagram, right? Like, I don't think a PE shop is going to pay. <laughs> so, so generally, the PE shop is much more numbers driven, and they're just grinding out crunching numbers. And you know, they've got a very, very clear path of what they want to do, and it, it and it takes very specific sort of financial statement type of, of analysis to come to that. And so generally those aren't going to be highest bidders. One of the things you said, you were talking about uh, Mark Suster's uh, both sides of the table. <laughs> and you said, uh, well, you kind of feel like you've sat on 10 sides of the table. Yeah, they were smaller tables for sure. And, <laughs> but in uh, like, I think what Mark has done for this community is absolutely phenomenal. And his blog, um, especially the early stuff, the later stuff's great too, but just as far as entrepreneur handbooks. I mean, he's, what he's done is absolutely phenomenal. And I, I was joking. I think we were having a beer or two when, when, <laughs> when, when we talked about this, but just, you know, his, his mantra obviously is both sides of the table and there's a tremendous val amount of value to that. I have uh, had the opportunity or blessing or curse to have done a diff couple of different things uh, as well. So, so you think this is the final side of the table for you? Or are you going to stay there? <sighs> Well, I am over the moon at Okapi and with my partners, and I want to be here for, you know, yeah, for, for I, I think, for the duration. Now, what will Okapi mean in, the, you know, in 15 years from now? I, I think that there could be some opportunities to do some really cool things, um, and I think that we the expertise we bring allows us to potentially 
you know, contemplate other types of things like whether it be later stage or incubation or, you know, things like that. But uh, for the foreseeable future, you know, this is definitely where I think we, you know, what I think I try to do anyway is sort of look at a Venn diagram of what are you good at? What do you enjoy doing and what does the world need, right? And the intersection of those three things is kind of a sweet spot. And for me, I'd like to think at least that's what I'm doing now is sort of the intersection of all three. I was just trying to think where I fit. What are my intersections? No, that's really interesting. And I, it's something that we've chatted about some too, which is how does what the world need change in terms of venture? And does it need more incubation? Does it need more later stage? And in particular, what does Southern California need? Yeah. What do you think are the big dynamics that are coming in terms of interplay with Sand Hill Road in Southern California scouts. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, you know, I've got my own point of view. And I'm sure if you ask another three people, you know, local VCs, they'll have different opinions. So this is by no means gospel. But I think LA and SoCal in general has got a really interesting period of time right now because there's been a couple of fits and starts, right, in the past where people thought SoCal was coming and then it kind of didn't or did for a little bit and then didn't. And, and now I think you're seeing that tipping point where there's enough connective tissue. I mean, we've always had the recent college grads. We've always had kind of entrepreneurs with exits, but you didn't have that middle tier of sort of the, the, the heart of what a startup needs and the engineers and that have got some experience. And I remember when I was at Idealab, we, uh, we used to get term sheets from Sand Hill Road contingent upon these guys moving their companies that doesn't have all the time yeah yeah it doesn't happen anymore right if anything it's kind of the opposite and i've got valley people coming to me saying all of our engineers are down south because you you just can't compete with google and facebook with those guys are willing to pay or the next shiny object you know startup up there they these guys just job hop from place to place and so if you want to find real good engineering talent people are coming down here a lot so I think, you know, as far as what venture needs and whatever everything else, you know, yeah, I think this startup, we're in a sweet spot now f- to be a VC in Southern California. Obviously, I'm biased. But I think there's, you know, money coming in from some very smart people like like you guys. I mean, you've been here for a while. but So there's a lot of smart money around the table, but there's still many more opportunities here in Southern California. So you still sort of have that inefficient market dynamic where there's more good ideas than, than local capital and local capital will always have an advantage over, you know, outside uh, capital. And I think right now, and for the you know next five years, there's a great relationship because Sand Hill Road has so much money that they need to plow into these companies. The seed stuff, you know, isn't all that interesting. They do it a lot for opportunity for optionality rather. And obviously there's certain companies that they just are, go all in on. So of course they do seed, but generally speaking, I think they're more than happy to have, you know, this earlier stage people, you know, do the local geography. And then as these companies scale, write those bigger checks. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's for the, for the local entrepreneur getting a check from, you know, one of the big funds up there isn't going to necessarily help them raise their A. Right. I mean, they'll help them raise the A from that fund right, if that's right, where right, it goes, but they're not going right. to pitch to all the right. everyone else. So it's right. useful to have the the local seed going. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking at all the various seed funds in LA, what should people think about when they see a copy? Why should they come to you? Um, I think they should think about us if they are looking for someone to be very, very active. And don't get me wrong. I mean, we don't, we, I don't think we're annoying these entrepreneurs and we're not, you know, we're not sort of knocking on the doors unannounced, but, um, 
you know, we really, you know, we have, we've seen a lot. We've been doing this for a long time. Mark, I mean, Okapi, the first fund was a 2006 fund. So as far as our network, our relationships, our ability to hopefully see beyond corners and sort of understand what's coming next, our ability to understand what these entrepreneurs are really, really going through. And it's not easy. You know, I mean, I think people see these outliers and just think that, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy thing and it's not, I mean, you're, all you're seeing is this, I think we may have talked about it before the survivorship bias of, you know, the one out of a thousand that, you know, end up hitting out of the park. And the reality is it's tough. It is really, really tough. My first company, when we were doing it, I mean, I could tell you stories about my partner and I locking our doors, <laughs> not wanting to see anybody because we just couldn't handle this, the, you know, the, the stress and, and understanding that and, and knowing what that's like and being able to coach these people out of it and, and uh, get them productive, both personally and professionally, I think is, you know, those types of things I think we really try and um be very present and active on. There was lots in here and I think it's great. So I'd say, I just thank John for being here. Thanks for having me. I, I uh, really think what you guys are doing is great, like I said, and um, would uh, enjoy to talk again anytime. And, and hopefully we'll be doing a deal together someday soon. Thank you to 8UpgradeBug and DWAXD for leaving reviews. We now have 23 reviews. D-U-X-D, I believe that is you, David. Um, for the rest of you, if we could get to 29 or 30 reviews, even that helps. We read everyone. Thank you so much. <laughs>